you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we continue with a look at Asian American film. The new book, The Golden Screen, The Movies That Made Asian America. Jeff Yang is the author of the book. Michelle Yeoh does a foreword to the book as well. And it's not only a beautiful book, which it is, incredible photographs of so many of these influential films, but also fascinating analysis of what these films represent. Jeff Yang, so good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm so incredibly excited to be here. Thank you, Larry. Well, let's start because I love how you lay these out chronologically and Flower Drum Song, mm. despite uh, many of the stereotypical characters, I know a very important film for many Asian Americans of a particular age who had not seen themselves on screen. And of course, you've got a wonderful cast of Asian American actors in Flower Drum Song. Let's start with that film and its importance. Yes. I mean, Flower Drum Song is one of those like many films in the book, love-hate films for many Asian Americans, the love part, of course, is simply it is the first film in which there's so much Asian American talent on screen singing, dancing, speaking, mostly without accents, in an American city, in San Francisco Chinatown. And that, for many of us, is the first time we really saw Asians doing what they were doing. Nancy Kwan, James Shigeta, James Hong, so many terrific actors in this. Of course, that's the good side, right? Uh, The bad side is, you know, it's one that, it's a a story that was written with a certain set of tropes, a certain set of, uh, some would argue, stereotypes. There is uh, a a set of storylines that seem to lean into the kind of diaspora differences between recent immigrants and those who are more assimilated. And there are people who find some of the jokes even that kind of uh, pop up in the dialogue a little cringy. But after all, it was written by Rogers and Hammerstein. It was directed by, you know... Uh, Henry Coster, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're not talking about something that was necessarily striving for authenticity, but definitely is it is still something I think that we need to celebrate. Well, it's great you start the book with it from 1961 to sort of set the stage uh, coming out of an era where there uh, really hadn't been a lot of Asian-American film. Uh, and you move on uh, through, through the years here here. But one of the things I like is you you mix what are your big films mm-hmm. with some of the ones that are that are smaller movies that are, may not be as well known. Eat a Bowl of Tea, for mm-hmm. example, from 1989. The importance of this film. Yeah, I mean, another Chinatown story, but a very different one. Uh, a drama with uh, a very kind of centered perspective, looking at essentially the generational differences between that first wave of immigrants, the so-called bachelor society, uh, who came over, you know, kind of in the era of exclusion and therefore had no wives and few family around. And this story is both a love story, a family story, a story of the tensions that occur in terms of people's expectations and people's performance, in this case, you know, 
between the sheets, right? <laughs> um, but it's a lovely story. It's an, an Asian American uh, iconic indie film. And it was created by Wayne Wong, who... Who's, Chan is Missing was his first film, I yes, believe. Yes, yeah. And Chan is, Chan is Missing, another film in the book. Uh, absolutely transformative film. Wayne would, of course, go on to be really, arguably, one of our, our most iconic and, and uh, greatest Asian-American living directors. 1989, a good year for Asian-American film because Arthur Dong's Forbidden City, USA, mm. uh, is also at this, a 56-minute film. I'm not familiar with this. Share with us what it's about. Well, you know, it's almost like continuing the theme of, of Chinatowns and uh, this whole sort of tension between what people perceive and project onto ethnic enclaves that, you know, gather together China and a kind of perspective on Chinese culture with our reality. Um, Arthur Dong's film, Forbidden City, USA, looks at, in some ways, the real world behind Flower Drum Song. It was the the chopstick circuit, as it were, where a lot of you know early Asian American performers first got their chance to get on stage. And it was cabaret girls, it was singers and, and crooners and, and dancers of all types who were performing within the confines of, again, the sort of exotic ambiance. But some of the biggest celebrities uh, in San Francisco actually went on a regular basis to Forbidden City. Anybody who's a, uh, a major star passing through San Francisco would drop by. It was, it was a, a destination. And it was one of the first places a lot of people got to see Asian American performing talent in that kind of a setting. For you, what, when you were a kid, was there a film you distinctly remember, Asian American themed film, that really had an impact on you? It depends on how one defines uh, Asian American film, especially as a kid. I mean, uh, I, I grew up in the you know seventies and eighties when Asian American cinema was still sort of finding its its legs, as we noted. But the first film featuring an Asian American that kind of gave me a gut punch and made me realize that what I'd been missing all this time, essentially, was probably Enter the Dragon, right? Uh, Bruce Lee, who had been born in San Francisco, grew up in, in Hong Kong, but came to Hollywood to find his star before returning to Hong Kong in order to truly achieve it. Just seeing him on screen for the first time, it made me catch my breath. It, 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 well, such an entertaining <laughs> film, too. An incredible film, uh, a film that's both epic uh, and, and uh, full of both action and thrills. And some thoughtfulness. I mean, he brought together a multiracial cast of, of protagonists, of heroes, at a time when civil rights was still kind of being contested in the streets. And I, I think that, you know, that film, like like his all-too-small canon in general, uh, just showed how much could have been accomplished had he continued to live beyond his untimely passing. I, I was uh, going to Hollywood High at the time when Enter the Dragon came out, and I remember it was at the Chinese Theater, and I was so surprised. A kung fu movie? Because, you know, we had the genre of kung fu. To think of, of that being uh, in the Chinese Theater... And then my friend saw the films like, you got to see this. This is great. Uh, but it's, that was a real smashing of a barrier. It was arguably the first time that a Chinese star was actually at the Chinese theater. But yes, he, he absolutely uh, flying kicked that barrier and smashed it to pieces. And frankly, for a lot of Asian Americans, that representation, even though there are those who subsequently said, well, we're not all martial artists. We can't all kick like that. Uh, it nevertheless proved to us that somebody Asian 
could stand at the center of the screen and dominate it and cause the entire audience just feel wrapped at his presence. That was amazing. We're talking with Jeff Yang, journalist and best-selling author. His new book, The Golden Screen, The Movies That Made Asian America. He's also written Once Upon a Time in China, A Guide to the Cinemas of Hong Kong. I am Jackie Chan, My Life in Action. He wrote with Jackie Chan. And Rise, A Pop History of Asian America from the 90s to Now, New York Times bestseller. And he also launched uh, one of the first Asian American national magazines, A Magazine, in the late 90s and early 2000s. We're talking about his new book, so many films that are highlighted here. And uh, one I have to talk about, because I just last night happened to watch Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor. I'm a big fan of the Crimson Kimono, set in Los Angeles's Little Tokyo. I actually um, curated the film and showed it at a film festival that I programmed. And uh, I was so pleased because James Shigeta came, and I was able to speak with him after the screening, the late James Shigeta. Um, Just uh, your thoughts about that Sam Fuller film. Well, in some ways, it kind of closes off the two legs of the conversation we've had so far. The first is James Shigeta was, of course, also the star of Flower Drum Song. Here he's not singing and dancing. He's in the center of a film noir as uh, a, a detective who's looking to solve a murder. But as in Flower Drum Song, he is actually the romantic lead of this film. And this is where the notion of breaking down barriers uh, comes in. While he's not doing it with martial arts, uh, he was doing it you know, in in a way that I think for a lot of us was just as breathtaking. This is actually, I think, the first film in which an Asian-American man actually not just gets the girl, so to speak, but there's an on-screen kiss, an interracial kiss between James Shigeta and his female co-star. And that, for Hollywood, even in that era, was a gigantic breakthrough for for generations you could not actually depict interracial love, interracial physical affection. And that's something that actually kept a lot of Asian Americans off screen or marginalized for many, many years. I actually got to drive James Shigeta home oh. after the screening. We did it at Caltech. And just wonderful to have him talk about his career. It's a very memorable evening for me as a fan of, of his work. That movie we're just talking about is The Crimson Kimono, 1959. Director Sam Fuller, Victoria Shaw, Glenn Corbett, uh, starring alongside James Shigeta. And it's a real critic's favorite, as many of Fuller's films are. We're going to continue our conversation with Jeff Yang. It's a beautiful book, The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America with a forward by Michelle Yeoh. We'll be back in just one minute on Film Week. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. 
It's Film Week on LA Est 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Jeff Yang, best-selling writer and author of the new book, The Golden Screen, The Movies That Made Asian America. And I would be neglectful if we didn't do a movie from the great Anna May Wong, whose life we talked about a few months ago on Film Week. Uh, and you suggested Daughter of the Dragon from 1931. This is a 70-minute Fu Manchu film. Anna May Wong stars in it. Sesu Hayakawa, another great actor alongside her. This has some interesting things to analyze in the film. Yes, it is not a good film. <laughs> it is actually almost unwatchable. And when I did watch it. It, it was just uh, very much a kind of grip the sides of my chair kind of experience. For multiple reasons. For I many reasons. <laughs> Warner Oland, of course, plays Fu Manchu in the great tradition of Fu Manchu basically never having been played by an Asian person. He is, of course, the the demon doctor, you know, the, the great supervillain invented to essentially serve as more or less the expression of yellow peril. And what's really interesting in this film is that Anime Wong plays his daughter. And she is kind of torn in this triangle between loyalty to her evil father and her growing attraction for Sesu Hayakawa's character. Uh, Sesu Hayakawa's character being an FBI agent sent to thwart the doctor's schemes. And it's one of the first times you actually had that sort of traditional setup of a dashing law enforcement officer and ingenue of some sort. And we actually feel like by the end of the movie, the two of them can actually be paired up. They can have that sort of walking off to the sunset together. But of course, this is a Hollywood movie in 1931, <laughs> and the two of them don't even end up kissing. They both end up dying at one another's hands. It is it's a tragedy, ultimately. But a tragedy not just on screen, also to a certain extent for the broader cultural landscape. I mean, Sesso Haikai was an iconic figure who ultimately... Uh, could have been probably the one of the leading Lotharios of the screen. But because of the Hayes Code that prevented, again, depiction of interracial relationships, because of just plain Which old racism. Which affected Anime Wong as well. Uh, yes. They could, not, they could not actually find the love that they perhaps deserved on screen. You include here Crouching Tiger, Hidden mm. Dragon from 2000, mm. uh, a, a film that isn't American explicitly, but obviously a huge effect yeah. with its all-Asian cast, uh, and, and just a spectacular film. Well, one of the things we actually made the decision to do with the book is to include films that are both Asian-American films, Hollywood films, and also films from Asia that made a big splash in America. Because the film is first and foremost about the experience of the audience, what we saw and how it changed us. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was the film that should have proved out everything that we thought could have been true, right? That Asian-Americans or Asian, rather, that asian images on screen would not drive away audiences, that people would actually read films, it's entirely subtitled, all Chinese, that all these things could be successful in the hands of a master director like Ang Lee. And that proved to be true. This is a film that made $100 million back in 2001, and that's 300-something million dollars today in our inflationary times. But the success of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did not change Hollywood. It actually ended up really just, you know, unleashing a few more period martial arts films on the world, and all that faded away. And it, it took until, I would argue, many years later when Bong Joon-ho and Parasite came forward uh, with, with its Academy Award success for people to really start feeling comfortable with the idea of subtitled cinema. 
Well, and here we are where Michelle Yeoh is one of our biggest movie stars mm. uh, in the world in today, the world. <laughs> including the United States. I mean, shows, um, obviously, uh, and she's not alone. There are many other you know, great Asian-American stars now. And the the thing I think which even Michelle would probably say is, what took you guys so long? <laughs> I've been around for a long time, but uh, Michelle is absolutely the the, the kind of the queen uh, of a rising Asian diaspora star community. It she is perhaps one of the few uh, Asian stars speaking English uh, or or acting in English who, if you see her name above the title, you're you're probably more likely to just say, I got to watch that yeah. film. Well, because anything that she's in, you can't take your eyes off her. She is, she's a star. I mean, not, not just an excellent actor, but she's got the star thing. Yes. And um, no, that's, that's exactly right. I did want to mention Joy Luck Club, mm. 1993 adaptation of the Amy Tan novel. Your thoughts about the significance of that and, and how it dealt with uh, culture. It was such an important milestone for us to the point where even today people use it essentially as the benchmark for Asian, you know, Asian films, Asian, films with Asian casts. It's the one people point to and say there has not been a film like this since Joy Luck Club, right? <laughs> uh, and it is a truly, it's a moving melodrama. It's a family story. It was the thing that introduced us to a generation of young Asian American stars who would in many ways dominate the landscape for Hollywood for the years to come, while also sharing with us uh, some of the kind of empress dowagers of a prior generation. And for all that, I think Joy Luck Club will always stand firmly in our memory as perhaps the one of the most important film accomplishments of its era. But again, it's a, it's a benchmark where it took another several decades before we finally got to a place where a film like that could break through to public consciousness, could be a box office success and not just a critical one. Jeff, I thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to say for any film lover, I recommend the book because it's, it's just, you spend so much time with it. Absolutely fascinating. And you don't need to be Asian American to appreciate the book. All you have to do is love film. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America. Jeff Yang, our guest. Thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.